Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello there. Now, I'm not going to start this episode of the podcast with the Willy Willy Harry Stee rhyme because Lady Jane Grey does not appear in the main body of the rhyme. And Lady Jane Grey, the nine days queen, is today's monarch. I mean, it is quite disputed about how much she was officially a queen. She never had a coronation ceremony. It was never officially put into place. But technically... She was our queen. And some versions of the rhyme stick her in at the end. So it ends with Charles, who was monarch-in-waiting when I first learned the rhyme back in the 60s. Now, officially, obviously, King Charles III. And some versions of the rhyme end with the lines, That's the way our monarchs lie since Harold got it in the eye. P.S. Sorry, Lady Jane Grey, you got the chop. Literally, as in real life, she had a head cut off. And I guess in terms of the rhyme, she was cut out of the rhyme as well. She had a pretty rotten time of it, Jane. I mean, it started well, but obviously ended extremely badly. And she's a very interesting, Lady Jane Grey. So many of the monarchs we've looked at up to this point have battled and murdered and schemed their way to the thrones. They've been desperate to take the throne at all costs, often ending badly for them as a result. But everyone has been absolutely desperate to get there. You know, it's no surprise that George R. R. Martin often mentions that Game of Thrones is based on this part of British history. This desperate idea to get on the bloody throne and to wear the hollow crown but Jane is completely different. She had no desire to be queen. She had never thought she might be queen. She was very much a pawn. And if you want to take the chess analogy further, there is a move in chess. I'm sure it's got a fancy name. I'm not sure what it is. But if you can manoeuvre your pawn to the opposite side of the board unopposed, you turn that pawn into a queen. And this is what happened with Jane Grey. And she got past not one queen, but two in the forms of Mary and Elizabeth. But as I say, she wasn't moving herself. There were the hands of, well, actually a small group of men who were manipulating her into the position where she ended up. So, as I say, she never expected to be queen. She was technically part of the royal family. So Henry VIII had two sisters who were therefore the daughters of Henry VII. One of them, Margaret, was married to a king of Scotland, James IV, and was known as Margaret, Queen of Scots. And their son was James V. And James V's daughter was Mary, Queen of Scots. 
So that is one line descending from Henry the Seventh, which we will look at in much more detail when we come on to Elizabeth the First. But Henry's other sister, Mary, was known as Mary, Queen of France, because she, for a short while, was married to the King of France. He was much older than her and died when she was quite young, at which point she returned to England and married a guy called Charles Brandon, who was the Duke of Suffolk. They had a daughter called Frances, who married a guy called Henry Grey, and thus became Francis Grey. And Francis and Henry were the parents of Jane, Lady Jane Grey. So she is part of this sort of East Anglian uh, aristocracy. Uh, She is the great granddaughter of Henry VII. But yes, she does have royal blood. But she is quite a long way from what should be the official line of succession through Henry VIII's actual children. So obviously we looked in the last episode at Edward VI. He dies when he's a teenager. But before he dies, he works very hard to make sure that his eldest sister, Mary, will not come to the throne because Mary refuses to accept Protestantism. And Edward, perhaps in honour of his father, or perhaps just that he had strong teenage principles, you know what teenagers can be like with their beliefs, he said, no, it has to be Protestant. We cannot turn our backs on the Reformation. This is the way forward. And so he scratched Mary out of the line of succession. He also scratched Elizabeth out of the line of succession, although I think at this stage she was reasonably neutral, but probably leaned towards Protestantism. But Edward was adamant that neither of his two sisters would come to the throne after him. And he worked with his chief advisor, John Dudley. And if you remember, Dudley was a Warwick and also a Northumberland. So you can call him many things, but I'm going to keep calling him Dudley as that, I think, is easier to remember than Northumberland. So he is the new strongman at court. He has manoeuvred his way past the two Seymour brothers, the uh, brothers of Jane Seymour, who both ended up being executed. And Dudley is now the man with the power, but he works very closely with Edward. I think the key thing is that he respected Edward and Edward's thoughts and ideas and views and he supported them now at certain points in history people have said oh it's all Dudley it's all his scheming Edward was just another pawn but I think the more modern view is that Edward was a pretty tough and strong-minded boy he was very much his father's son had a lot of the same traits as Henry VIII and it was only right at the end when he got ill with this lung disease that he became weakened But essentially, he and Dudley, Northumberland, have looked around and they've said, we can make a claim that this girl, Jane Grey, should come to the throne. And the other key thing here is that Dudley has already married his son, Guildford. Now, that was actually his name. He wasn't like a Northumberland or a Warwick or a Somerset. His actual name was Guildford Dudley. The reason, I think, being that his father, John Dudley, had been the ward of a man called Sir Edward Guildford from the age of seven, and he'd obviously liked him. So John Dudley had married off his son, Guildford Dudley, to Jane, which meant that, technically, if Jane came to the throne, then Guildford Dudley would be king. Now, after she'd been announced as queen, Jane offered to make her husband, Guildford Dudley, the Duke of Clarence, but he refused. It was king or nothing for him. Yes, he wanted to be called King Guildford. I mean, you know, what, whatever next, King Croydon, King Basingstoke. Jane, however, was very careful not to allow Guildford to be called king. Now, we will look later on at how Jane signs various documents saying there's no way Guildford Dudley will be king. He will be my consort. And I think that was a sort of political move to defend herself, because obviously there is deep suspicion that the father, John Dudley, is kind of manoeuvring his own family into this position whereby 
his son could be king because we, we've looked before at this problem within Europe that if you have a female heir who takes the throne and they marry a male, then in most cases that male then becomes the king. Uh, things were changing. And obviously after Lady Jane Grey, Mary comes to the throne as our first full-on proper queen. But she becomes completely unstuck, and we'll look at this towards the end of the episode, and obviously in Mary's episode, our next one, she makes the mistake of marrying Philip of Spain. So as I say, we'll come back to that. Let's just backtrack and look at Jane's life up to this point. She was born in 1537, um, as I say, her father was Henry Grey, the Duke of Suffolk, and her mother was Francis, Francis Grey, and she was the descendant of Henry VII. So this meant that Jane was a cousin of Edward VI. Now, in some ways, it's a little bit difficult finding out the actual details of Jane's life, because after she was executed, she became this great Protestant martyr. And there are lots of various sort of hagiographic accounts of her life from Protestant historians and from Protestant bishops or whatever. And she is sort of presented as this classic doomed virginal um, heroine who, who died for all of us. So getting an unbiased view of her life is tricky and getting the early details is also tricky. It's a bit sketchy because for most of her life, neither she nor anyone else was expecting her to be made queen. Now, when Jane was 10 years old, she joined the household of Catherine Parr, Henry's last wife, and she seemed to have had a very good education, certainly amongst the aristocracy and certainly at court. The women, the girls, were educated at least as well as the boys, and she had this classic new humanist education, very similar to Edward VI, where she is reading a lot of the classical writers. She seems to have particularly loved the works of Plato. I'm not sure how many young girls today read Plato, but uh, I'm sure there are some. But yes, she had this more modern style of education, which wasn't just a sort of Christian education mixed in with some Latin and, and some bits of history. So she's learning maths and she's learning science and she's learning the classics and she seems to have been a very precocious and bright young woman. And those of you who have been paying attention will know that Catherine Parr, after Henry VIII died, remarried to Jane Seymour's brother. She married the younger one, Thomas, who was the sort of flaky brother. He was always jealous of his big brother, jealous of the power that his brother had, always plotting behind his brother's back to, to get more power for himself and to undermine Edward. And so Jane is now in a household with Catherine Parr and Catherine Parr's new husband, Thomas Seymour, who saw Jane as a useful ally, a useful weapon in his attacks on his older brother. And a deal was done with Jane's parents, the Greys, that he would have official custody of Jane. He had to pay for this honour. So this is the sort of first move in Jane being used as a pawn. Thomas is thinking, if I can control Jane, that is as I said, a useful weapon. At the time, in order to get Jane's parents to agree to this, he promised them that he would find a good marriage for her and put her in a more elevated position. So they went along with this. I mean, not really for Jane's sake, but I think in terms of promoting the importance of the Grey family. Thomas Seymour is even promising that he would get Jane married to Edward, Edward VI, as he becomes. And it seems that Jane had been quite unhappy growing up at home with her parents. She always accused them of being very strict and of being sort of physically abusive to her, slapping and pinching her. She's not attending to her studies properly. And she seems to have been quite miserable at home and was much happier in Catherine Parr's household. Unfortunately, then Catherine Parr dies in childbirth. So she's no longer there in the household. Thomas renews his payment of £2,000 to carry on being her protector. 
And he's also plotting away against his brother. And he comes very unstuck. Eventually, his brother has had enough of him. He turns on him, arrests him and has him executed on slightly trumped up charges of treason. So the Parr-Seymour household has pretty much fallen apart and Jane has to, rather reluctantly, return to the family home in Norfolk, where she is at least able to carry on with her education. As I say, reading a lot of Greek and Latin, and the Greek aspect of this is something new. We, we touched on this when we looked at Edward VI, this idea of, of rediscovering the great writers and thinkers of the past who had been suppressed under traditional Christianity. And it's interesting that Latin and Greek were for so long considered to be the cornerstones of a proper education and that without being able to read classical texts in the original Latin and Greek, you were an uneducated buffoon. And and if you look at the history of Oxford and Cambridge universities, if you wanted to get into them, you had to know Greek and Latin. Not just if you were studying the so-called classics. It was a requirement if you wanted to study anything. And this lasted well into the 20th century. Oxford and Cambridge universities only dropped the requirement for students to have qualifications in ancient Greek. And Latin held on until the end of the 1950s. Yes, if you wanted to go to Oxford or Cambridge before 1960, you had to be able to write and read Latin. So Jane is immersed in this modernist education, uh, this new Renaissance way of thinking about the world. And she saw her parents as being a bit old and stuffy and old fashioned, you know, very much again, like any teenager today. You know, she's thinking, hey, you know, I'm learning the new stuff. My parents are so out of touch. She even started learning Hebrew so that she could read the Old Testament in the original because there is this great growing desire of people to to be able to approach the Bible and approach God sort of directly by themselves and not necessarily having to go via a priest. And we saw how when, you know, if all of the services are conducted in Latin, except for the sermon, then the priests are able to interpret the Bible however they want and push their views on the congregations. But now we have translations of the Bible into English. We have Thomas Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer. Christianity is so much more open to people. And the really, really bright ones are wanting to go back to original sources. Even today, there are big you know, arguments and debates over the Bible. A certain words have been translated in a certain way over the millennia and people are now saying actually this is a complete mistranslation. I guess one of the most extreme examples is that the word in ancient Hebrew for young woman is the same as the word for virgin. So stories of miraculous virgin births are perhaps not so miraculous after all. But I digress. I I'm just trying to show that Jane had an inquiring mind. But despite ensuring she had an education. Her parents didn't envisage the life of a scholar for her. Basically, she was just a possession that had value in the marriage stakes. As we saw, they'd originally pinned their hopes on Thomas Seymour, sorting out something for them, but he's now dead. And soon after this, his older brother Edward is executed as well. These two uncles of Edward VI, brothers of Jane Seymour, and, as I said before, there's a new man in charge, John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland. And so they start throwing their lot in with him. They're not giving up. They want Jane to get a good position at court, to have a good marriage, to be an important young lady. And now Edward VI falls ill. And we're back to where we started. This plot to get Jane made queen. Do we call it a plot? Well, I mean, yeah, it has many of the aspects of a plot. But the first step in it is to get Jane married to John Dudley's son. Now, Jane is initially very against this idea because she had been betrothed to someone else. And her parents are saying, oh, forget that. We'll, we, we'll get rid of that. And she's saying, no, you know, I'm, I'm a Protestant, but that does not make me a bad Christian. You know, I'm, I'm betrothed to this other guy. I don't really know this guy, Guilford Dudley. 
And, you know, in some accounts, it says that her parents forced her and, and beat her until she agreed to marrying Guildford, which she hated. But it's so hard to untangle the truth from all these romantic myths and legends and stories that have grown up around Jane. Jane, the great, innocent Protestant martyr. But I suppose the sort of accepted line is she was against this marriage, as I say, partly because she had already been betrothed to someone else and she didn't really know Guilford Dudley. And she must have known that this was slightly dodgy and that this was the machinations of the Dudley family and her own parents. But she reluctantly marries Guilford. But then they sort of fall in love. Quite a lot of this period, we get our details from Italians who were at the English court and they were sending letters back to the Pope or whatever. And so we do get some first-hand information. And this guy, Giulio Rosso, apparently said, no matter how much she protested, she eventually agreed to this marriage by the urgency of her mother and the violence of her father who compelled her to accede to his commands by blows. So they tell Jane you've got to have this marriage and that she must be ready to go to court at any moment because she may be called upon to take over after Edward dies. Now, she doesn't take this seriously at all. She's thinking, what on earth are you talking about? I'm not directly in line to the throne. Why would you be saying this? But she does go down to London, to the royal manor at Chelsea, where Edward is trying to recuperate. And she's there when he dies. And then she is taken to Sion House where she's ceremoniously informed that she is indeed Edward's chosen candidate to succeed him. And she's absolutely appalled by the idea, partly because she's thinking, well, I don't really have any great right to this, but mainly she must have been thinking, oh my God, I don't want to be queen. I don't want to be thrown into this viper's nest. You know, it's so interesting when you look at these people close to the king in the court, constantly plotting, scheming against each other, getting other people arrested and executed. It's a very, very dangerous life at court. And she would have seen a lot of that when she was in Catherine Parr's household. And she is now thrown right into the middle of this. She's been married off against her will to this boy of 19, Guildford Dudley. I mean, if she'd played snog, marry, avoid she probably wouldn't have avoided him. He was apparently tall and strong with fair hair, and he seemed to be quite devoted to her. But marry? Probably not. And as I say, once they were married, and they were thrown together into this maelstrom, she did look like she perhaps grew closer to him. And at the beginning of the episode, I touched on the fact that she couldn't actually risk making him an official king. He could only be her consort, otherwise it would cause uproar. And she did take her new role seriously, saying that the crown was not a plaything for boys and girls. So she's really saying, I shouldn't be part of this, Guildford shouldn't be part of this. This would put them in even more trouble if she tries to promote Guildford as the actual king. But one of these new Protestant bishops, Bishop Ridley, now, I, I mentioned in the last episode that one of the few things I remember from school history lessons is this trio of Protestant clergymen, Cranmer, Latimer and Ridley, who were burnt at the stake by Queen Mary for heresy. So he's one of those three. And he preaches a sermon at St Paul's saying that she is our rightful queen and denouncing both Mary and Elizabeth as bastards. Mary especially because she is a papist who would bring foreigners into the country and who would consort with the Antichrist, with the Pope, which, as we looked at, is the mistake that Mary made, not consorting with the Antichrist, but marrying a foreigner, which to an Englishman is probably worse. So it is announced to the country and to the court that Jane is queen. Now, the power base is London. It has been for a long while. If you hold London, you can pretty much control the debate. And Northumberland is there in London with Jane's mother and father and Jane herself saying Jane is the Queen. It is an enormously unpopular announcement. 
The people of England don't like it. They don't go for it. They're all saying, well, hang about. Who on earth is this Jane Grey woman? Why is she suddenly our queen? And it's not particularly popular at court because they're seeing it for what it is. A major power grab from John Dudley, Duke of Northumberland, marrying his son Guildford to her, thus making him the consort of the queen. And Northumberland makes a very big mistake. He lets Mary get away. If he'd been properly ruthless and had properly studied his history, the first thing he would have done, probably before he even announced that Jane was queen, and he did delay the announcement of Edward VI's death for a few days to make sure his pieces were all in place on the chessboard and so that Jane was in the right place, her family was in the right place, whatever. But he made one mistake. He let the enemy queen get away. Mary left London and she went to Norfolk, where she had strong popular support because it had been from Norfolk, from East Anglia, that this great rebellion against Edward VI's reign had sprung up. This partly Catholic rebellion, but also this rebellion against the land enclosures that were happening. So she had strong popular support there, which she called upon and started raising a force. At which point Northumberland said to Jane's father, you'd better go and try and sort this out, you know, raise an army and deal with this. And apparently Jane, knowing how dangerous this could be, said, no, no, please, you know, I'm queen. I will not let my father go. It's too dangerous for him. At which point Northumberland thought, OK, I'm going to have to do it. And that was a really, really bad move on his behalf, because as soon as he was out of London, his control of London had gone. So he marches up to try and deal with Mary and behind his back at the court in London, there is a coup. These other members of the ruling council who had been in place because Edward was so young, they obviously thought, you know, Jane's claim to the throne is very tenuous. Mary is going to be able to raise a lot of popular support. We don't want to be on the receiving end of her wrath if she is successful and she's likely to have us all executed. So they denounce Northumberland as a traitor, take power. Northumberland has to give up. He returns to London where he's arrested and pretty quickly executed. So that's the end of John Dudley. And after nine days or so, uh, it's disputed exactly how long Jane Grey was officially queen but she's known as the nine days queen so we'll stick with that after this very short reign mary arrives in london where she's declared queen mary wouldn't have said that she had deposed jane because she never recognized her as being queen in the first place and to start with she shows mercy to her she doesn't want to sail onto the throne across a sea of blood like her father henry the eighth had done she doesn't want to be seen as a violent harridan intent on bloody revenge. And so she pardons Jane and Guildford, but keeps them under house arrest. And maybe Jane would have got away with it. Maybe she would have eventually been fully pardoned and been absorbed into the new royal household. Who knows? Um, she staunchly held on to her Protestant views, though. But the one thing that screws it for her is her father, who seems to have made her life miserable from the start. Fairly soon after Mary takes the throne, she marries Philip of Spain, making herself very unpopular. People are saying, oh dear, we're not so keen on this. She's only gone and married a foreigner. He could take over as our bloody king. Because nobody is used to having a queen on the throne. Jane's father, Henry Grey, thinks, aha, there's a chink in her armour. He joins this uprising against Mary, at which point he puts his daughter, Jane, into terrible danger. It all goes wrong. Henry Grey is defeated, captured and executed. I'll look at this more in the next episode. And Mary realises that as long as Jane is around, she will always be a potential threat and has her executed on the same day as her husband, Guildford. He's executed first in public at Tyburn. He's hanged and then has his head cut off and he's brought back to the Tower of London where Jane is now held prisoner 
and apparently the cart with his headless body is driven past her window. And later that day, Jane herself is taken to the block within the grounds of the Tower of London, um, at least given a more private end. She was only 16, nearly 17 years old, but she showed incredible strength. Mary had sent one of her own priests to plead with Jane to try and get her to renounce her Protestantism. And apparently they had a lot of long and interesting and reasonably amicable discussions. But in the end, she wouldn't renounce her faith, probably because she knew that even if she did, she was still going to be executed. So she kept her principles to the end and was taken to the block with two of her ladies-in-waiting who were... Weeping heavily, she apparently remained dry-eyed and composed. They put a handkerchief around her eyes, at which point she kind of showed some emotion. She panicked for the first time, groping around in the dark for the block, saying, where is it? What shall I do? And her attendants came forward and guided her into place. And she laid down and said, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And that was the end of her essentially murdered by Mary, who later got the epithet Bloody Mary. Although whether she killed any more people than her father, Henry, or her sister, Elizabeth, is open for discussion. And, you know, I think from, from right across the spectrum, everybody felt very sorry for Jane. Catholic, Protestant, aristocracy, the commoners. Um, they saw that none of this was her own doing. She'd been manipulated and led into it by these powerful, unscrupulous men. And she soon developed this image of, as I say, the doomed virginal maiden and the first great English Protestant martyr. The first of many, and as we shall see in the next episode when we deal with Mary, she set about herself with some gusto trying to reverse history by burning people at the stake. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. But now to talk in more detail about Jane's reign, I'm delighted to say that I have Helen Castor back on. Helen has been a great friend of this show, uh, written many books, particularly about women through this historical period of the Middle Ages through into the Tudors. And Helen, I'm sad to say this will probably be your, your last appearance as we move on from your period of expertise. You're leaving me behind, Charlie. Yes. Yes, I need to find myself some new historians. But uh, it's wonderful to have you back again and to talk about another very interesting female character in history who, despite only being around for 17 years and being in the public eye for about nine days, has uh, seemed to have a huge effect and is still one of these characters that people are, well, a, a lot of people are obsessed with her. Is that going too far? I don't think so. No, I think the combination, as you say, of her extreme youth she wasn't even 17 when she died the very violent way she did meet her end i mean beheading is always a a very dramatic thing and particularly staged in the way it was by the tudor state those two things together a bit like joan of arc the one thing they had in common was a kind of religious fundamentalism we might mm. call it um so i think all in all jane is fascinating, not least because she's quite hard to see. Um, there are layers of myth that have accumulated 
over the centuries since she died, partly because of this fascination with her. So trying to get back to the real Jane Grey is quite a task. I sort of said in my opening bit that we don't know that much about her early life because she wasn't expected to be anything special. And so much of what we know about her is come down through quite biased hagiographers, these Protestant writers, historians, bishops, whatever, who chose to put her forward as our first great Protestant martyr. That's it. And this moment in 1553, when she was proclaimed queen, whether or not we're actually accepting her as one of the role pool of England monarchs. I, I don't know where you stand well, on it. Well, she's not officially in the body of the Willy Willy Harry Stero, which for me is is my main <laughs> source source material. But she is mentioned at the end. There's an apology to her. But I wanted to do an episode on her because through her, we can tell quite a significant part of Tudor history. This is exactly what I was going to say, that 1553 is a remarkable moment in English history for two reasons, I think. One is that this is the first succession to the throne where religion becomes the key point of contention, the deciding factor. That hadn't happened ever before in England's history. And secondly, for the first time since the conquest, it wasn't a question before the conquest, but since the conquest, it's the first time when every possible claimant to the English throne on the family tree, wherever you look, is female. Mm. So this is a point at which England is going to get a reigning queen for the first time, come what may, whether they liked it or not, and most of them didn't. But the Tudors had been so bad at producing boys and so good at killing anyone else with a potential claim to the throne <laughs> that there were only women left. So the question became which of these women was going to wear the crown, and that's when religion came in as the deciding factor. It's a really tense, dangerous, and historically absolutely fascinating moment. So Edward VI and the Duke of Northumberland have to choose some kind of successor. You're saying they can only choose a woman. Was she the best choice? From their point of view, she was the only choice but in a sense, I think we need to back up a stage. Edward and Northumberland wanted to choose a successor, but one of the big questions was whether or not they had the right to. Because Henry VIII had already chosen yeah. who he wanted the successor to be should anything happen to Edward. He didn't want anything to happen to Edward. He wanted Edward to be the first in, in a succeeding line of glorious Tudor kings. But Henry VIII being the kind of man who liked to control everything he possibly could, had already written an order of succession in the Act of Succession of 1544. And what he'd said was, Edward should succeed after me. And if anything were to happen to Edward, then next in line is my older daughter, Mary, and then my younger daughter, Elizabeth. Now, this is despite mm. the fact that in a different statute of parliament, Henry VIII had said Mary and Elizabeth were illegitimate because, of course, he'd never properly been married to their mothers, Catherine of Aragon or Anne Boleyn. But Henry VIII was the kind of person who had no difficulty believing six impossible things before breakfast, as long as they made him <laughs> right. So for Edward and Northumberland, there's a problem because there is a statute, a parliamentary statute, saying that after Edward comes Mary. But Mary is Catholic. And Edward is a ferocious kind of Protestant, evangelical Protestant. Mm. Mm. And John Dudley is also a Protestant because that's the way to be in power in Edwardian England. And John Dudley's priority is to make sure that he stays in power. And he knows that the minute Mary comes to the throne, he'll be out and minus ahead. So how are they able to, to overturn Henry's act of succession? Well, there's a logical flaw, as so often, in Henry's uh, plans, which is that if he has made an act of succession in Parliament and confirmed it in his last will, which he has, he said, I will the crown to my son Edward and then my daughter Mary Elizabeth. Edward VI is as much a king as Henry. Why can't he make a will and another act of succession to change it to what he wants? Because that's what Henry did. 
what's the point of being king if you can't tell people what to do, make up laws and cut people's heads off? Exactly. Um, the problem being that Edward gets too ill too quickly. So Edward and Dudley don't actually have time to push everything through Parliament. And it's a moot point whether they would have succeeded because, of course, the whole country is used to the idea that the old king had three children, Edward, Mary and Elizabeth, and that that was the order of succession. But time is running out because Edward is so ill in the spring mm. of 1553. And so what they do is really they launch a coup from within government, a secret coup, in order to grab the leaders of power the minute Edward should draw his last breath and make sure that their chosen successor should be the one to take over instead of Mary. So what paperwork do they have for that then? Fantastically, they have a bit of homework that Edward had done <laughs> a little while earlier. He had in his schoolroom drawn up what seems to have been a sort of hypothetical exercise, a document in his own handwriting, which he headed, my device for the succession. Right. Device in this context, meaning a legal document for the bestowal of property. And so he's sort of treating the country as though it's his property and he can leave mm. it where he wants to. And the principles of this device seem to be that the next monarch should be male and should be Protestant, like Edward himself. The problem being, there aren't any boys. And so what the device does is it has this elaborate hypothetical scheme leaving out various people. Among the people it leaves out are Mary and Elizabeth, because of course they're illegitimate. Henry didn't mind them being illegitimate, mm -hmm. but Edward is saying, no, they're illegitimate, they're out. Elizabeth's kind of collateral damage here because Mary, it's clear that Mary being Catholic is the problem. But being Catholic is no, there's, there's nothing on the statute books to say you can't be monarch if you're Catholic. But illegitimate is a problem. So let's get rid of both of them. Let's also ignore the Scottish line. Uh, Henry VIII's older sister, Margaret, had married the King of Scotland. And her descendant was Mary, Queen of Scots. But she is foreign and Catholic. So that's a double whammy. So the only line left are the descendants of Henry's younger sister, Mary, and they are Jane Grey and her family. Now, her mother's still alive, her mother through whom the claim comes. So there's Frances Grey, yeah. and then her three daughters, Jane Grey, yeah. Catherine Grey, and Mary Grey. And what Edward does is he says the crown should go to a son that one of these four women might have in future. Mm. But there are no sons. And he says, if I should die before they have a son, then Francis Gray can be governor of the kingdom until such a boy is born. So he's envisaging an empty throne with Francis right. Gray deciding. As soon as this has to be reality, it's nonsense. It can't happen. You can't have an empty throne with a woman keeping an eye on it until a baby boy should be <laughs> born in the future. So what Edward does on his sickbed is he adds two words to this device. Where it said the crown should go to the heirs male of Lady Francis Gray and Lady Jane heirs male, Lady Catherine's mm. male, etc. He puts in Lady Jane and her heirs male. And by adding and her to the document, he makes Jane Gray the heir to his throne. Still doesn't make sense because her claim comes from her mother and her mother is still alive. And there's no explanation for that. <laughs> but Jane Grey has just been married to John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland's son of Guildford. So this is a stitch-up. This is a way of getting a reliably fierce Protestant, Jane Grey, on the throne, married to the Duke of Northumberland's. It's his fourth son. It's not even, you know, in normal circumstances, yeah. Dudley wouldn't be a match for Jane Grey at all. But in these circumstances, it's a pragmatic palace coup and it's being kept secret, crucially. We have to understand that this is all happening behind closed doors uh, in Edward's sick room. And Northumberland thinks, well, if I can get all this stitched up, get the privy councillors to come in and promise that secretly that they will abide by this, we can, the minute Edward dies, we can grab Mary, put her under lock and key, get Jane installed, it'll all be fine. In retrospect, this looks like a bloody stupid plan that was always going to be doomed to failure. 
But Dudley wasn't a stupid man, so he must have thought he had a chance of this succeeding. How much faith did he have in the English people that they'd accept Jane? And how much faith did he have in the rest of the ruling council that they'd back him all the way? Faith that pretty quickly proved to be misplaced when they turned on him as soon as he left London. I think Dudley, well, he was in a corner and he was a politician who was very used to dealing with the situation in front of him. And I think this plan was the best of a very, very, very poor hand of cards. Mm. Edward dying was a spanner in the works that he had not wanted. It was very hard to deal with. But I think he underestimated two things. One was within the walls of past Westminster or Greenwich or wherever Edward was, Protestantism and a particular kind of evangelical Protestantism had such a hold mm. on the political class that had been left in charge by Henry VIII. In a way, Henry VIII had never really been a Protestant, doctrinally, but mm. once he quit for Rome, the only people who were reliably, utterly loyal to his new vision of the Church of England were the ones who wanted to go further doctrinally. So Protestantism had a real hold within the corridors of power. But I think John Dudley underestimated the residual hold of the old ways, the traditional ways of Catholicism in the country as a whole. If you're launching a Protestant revolution, you kind of need a groundswell of Protestant belief. And there mm. wasn't much of one yet at this point in, in England. Um, and secondly, and most importantly, he underestimated Mary. Everyone underestimated her. I mean, did he did he make an attempt to keep her in London because she 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 saw the way the things were going and went off to Norfolk? But had he tried to stop her leaving? Yes, she had been at her manor just outside London, and Northumberland kept asking her to come to London, come and see your brother. The king wants to see you, <laughs> um, and Mary wouldn't. Now Mary was having to play this very carefully as well because if she made any move herself before Edward was dead, she could be charged with treason. He was having to hold fire. But um, Northumberland was trying to get her to London, and she wasn't coming. In theory, Edward and Northumberland's plan was secret, but of course, courts leak. Um, yeah. Palace leak. Mary, I think, had a good idea what the threat was that lay ahead. And the minute she heard that Edward was dead, which Northumberland was trying to keep secret for three days, as soon as Edward died, he sent a message to Mary saying, right, come to London now. The king needs to see you. And Mary went off to East Anglia. Um, but nobody thought she stood much of a chance. She was a woman on her own with no mm. husband to fight for her. Even her allies, the, her cousin Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, his ambassadors, they were writing back saying, well, you know, maybe the best we can do is not quite airlift her, but shiplift her <laughs> off the coast of East Anglia and get her to safety. No one... In the political classes, there was a woman on her own right. could do much about this, but she was absolutely adamant. She was Henry VIII's daughter. She was the granddaughter of Isabella of Castile, who'd been Queen of Castile in her own right. Now, other Catherine of Aragon didn't see the problem with having a daughter. Her mother had been a phenomenal um, Queen of Castile for many years, and Mary wasn't going to give up. And so she went to East Anglia and she started sending lessons out, signed by Mary the Queen. And these arrived at the tower with the Privy Council in nervous conclave, with her saying, right, you, you, you're all my subjects, you will all obey me. And by this time, they've got Jane to the tower. Jane's going, what do you mean I'm queen? <laughs> to be talked into it on the grounds that her Protestant God wants her to do it. Um, but the Privy Council by this stage are beginning to realise they've got a problem on their hands because the country as a whole sees Mary as the heir and doesn't mm. know who Jane is. So they they ditch poor old Dudley and uh, suddenly they're all Catholic again. Uh, yes, well, <laughs> Dudley himself tries to be Catholic again. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. You do have to feel for everyone caught up in this horrible situation. Dudley has gone off. As you said, he can't be everywhere at once. He's left London with troops telling the other pretty councillors to hold the fort at the tower. And as soon as he's gone, they start wobbling and and mm. extremely nervous. But he's got as far as Cambridge when he hears the news that the Privy Council have abandoned him. They've 
claimed Mary Queen in London. And so in the market square at Cambridge, he too then proclaims Mary Queen. And there's a fantastic description of him throwing his hat in the air and proclaiming her queen. And he so laughed that the tears ran down his <laughs> grief. He knew it was all over. And when he got back to London, he started hearing mass and... Um, uh. And Jane was absolutely outraged at his perfidy and his faithlessness, whereas mm. she wouldn't hear mass in a million years. Uh, she was an absolutely ferocious fundamentalist Protestant, and the idea that this man would put her in this position would just say, "All right, then we're Catholic again," uh, horrified her. And, you know, poor old Dudley must have also known then that his son Guildford was not long for this world. Yes. It's it's difficult to know, isn't it? Because Guildford, poor Guildford had been a pawn in the whole thing. I mean, Dudley's mm. plan had clearly been that if he could make Jane Grey queen and have his son married to her, the plan had been that Guildford Dudley should be king. Mm. It's ironclad logic, you might think. The wife of a king becomes the queen, so the husband of a king yeah. was a king. Jane wasn't having any of that either. Um, it became clear once they brought her into the tower in preparation for the coronation that never happened. Sorry to interrupt, but I think it says so much about the royal family that the Tower of London is not only a royal palace and the place that you go when you're waiting to be crowned, but it's also a prison. I, I think it's a great metaphor in many ways for being a king or a queen. Anyway, sorry, carry on. Jane's in the tower. Um, a crown was brought to her to try on, and, and they said to her, we'll bring you another one for your husband um, for when he becomes king. And she says, no, no, I'll make him a duke, but he can't be king. In other words, if you're making me queen, I'm in charge. The whole problem with mm. a female monarch being that men are in charge of women, so and a husband is in charge of a wife. So, But, but Jane had the, the rigid convictions of a teenager. <laughs> of of, of a, a very clever, very, very well-educated teenager who had been brought up in the belief that her brand of Protestantism was the most important thing that any human being could commit their life. And it's quite a sort of contemporary feel to her relationship with her parents, I think. The idea of this teenage girl saying, leave me alone, you're so old-fashioned, you treat me so badly... I mean, she, she doesn't seem to have been very well treated by her parents throughout her life. It's difficult, this one. It's not clear, uh, partly because of the myth-making afterwards, yes. um, that the vision we have of Jane as this poor, put-upon innocent who only wanted to be with her books and then is beaten by her parents to make her marry a man she doesn't want to marry and to make her take the crown when she doesn't want to take it. Um, and then all she wants to do is go back to her books <laughs> afterwards. There's a grain of truth in it, but it is clear that they had very high hopes for her in the sense that they didn't have a son. And her father, Henry Gray, had been um, phenomenally well-educated himself. They were utterly committed to her brain, her intellect, her future. And when this possibility of becoming queen came up, I mean, it was a shock to her. She didn't see how it was her right. But when it was put to her that the alternative is England going back into the darkness of Catholicism, she has to give in to that argument. There are heart-rending moments when her father is sent to her in the tower to tell her that it's all over with the council of the her, that Mary's being proclaimed queen and he tears down the cloth of estate that is over her throne. Because when a monarch is sitting there, they have a, that mm. kind of canopy that is over your head. It's called the cloth of estate and it indicates that you are the sovereign. He pulls it down from over her head. Well, she asks, can I go home now? <laughs> and of course she can't go home. She's mistreated in that sense by everyone around her. Mm. She's very young. Um, she has these extraordinary convictions. And she has no choice, really, once she's become a puppet in this um, play. But I think we need to be a bit careful about seeing her as the sort of fainting virginal maiden of yes. portraits of her. Because 
the degree of her religious commitment was so unwieldy. And she, when she went to the scaffold, she carried a tiny little prayer book in her hands, which still exists. It's in the British Library. It's one of the most extraordinary artifacts you mm. could see. It's small enough to fit into the palm of the hand. And it's a very Protestant prayer book. It's in English, it's got no, almost no decoration, but she wrote a couple of messages in it. One of them for the Lieutenant at the Tower, um, John Bridges, who accompanied her to the scaffold. And her message to him says, live still to die, that by death you may purchase eternal life. That's what she was focused on. The real life was the life to come, mm. her Protestant heaven. So to to die in this world was only, for the right cause, was only to achieve eternal life in a better place. It, it's not quite the image of the helpless no. girl. But, I mean, she, in a sense, she was helpless, but she's a lot more like Joan of Arc in that sense. Right. No, I mean, she, she does seem to have been a, a pretty tough woman. I mean, at, at the end, Mary sent the new dean of St. Paul's, a guy, and I have to try and say this without laughing, but I've already failed, John Feckenham, uh, to kind of um, see if she would recant and, and and all the kind of usual stuff that people are expected to do. But she, she seems to have enjoyed engaging him in some great religious and philosophical arguments. That's it. That's what she'd be brought up for. She had a phenomenal brain and a phenomenal education. She was said to be cleverer even than Princess Elizabeth, who was a very, very clever woman. I think it slightly depends what you mean by clever. I mean, in, in intellectually, in terms of her engagement with theology and so on, quite possibly. Politically cleverer, definitely not. Um, but but yes, there's another quotation from a she, she wrote to a former family chaplain from the Tower because she was so enraged at all these people she had thought were true believers who now, under the new regime of Mary, were suddenly discovering, rediscovering their Catholic faith. And she wrote to him, O wretched and unhappy man, which sometimes worked the lively member of Christ, but now the deformed imp of the devil. Why choose to live miserably with shame in this world rather than to die gloriously and reign in honour with Christ to the end of all eternity? That's well again. That's a, the teenage convictions. Yes, I mean it, it's interesting because she did achieve a form of immortality. She's had an, an extraordinary sort of afterlife in a way in in the history books and also in so many popular books, films, TV shows, whatever. She did. I mean, if you if you look at her um, profile, her her presence in nineteenth century art, for example, mm. absolutely. Astonishing, between 1827 and 1877, so in that half century, 24 paintings of Jane, featuring Jane, were exhibited at the Royal Academy in London. Um, and in 1835, an American artist called George Whiting Flagg made his name with a painting called Lady Jane Grey Preparing for Execution. It's a, it's a, it's much, a much less good painting than the Paul Delaroche in the National Gallery. Yes. No. A slightly more lumpen Jane being blindfolded. But Flagg explains that his original title had been Mary Queen of Scots preparing for it. He saw which way the wind was blowing. Changed it because Mary was apparently too old when she was executed to make an interesting picture. So there is definitely something about this young, beautiful woman being blindfolded and led to her violent death that grabs the 19th century imagination and ours oh, still. I also don't know if you've come across Jane Austen's history of England, in which Jane Grey, no. when Jane Austen was 16, 1791, she wrote a very, very brief and very funny um, <laughs> history of England from the reign of Henry IV to the death of Charles I by a partial, prejudiced and ignorant historian. <laughs> and mostly this very short volume is about how uh, Mary Queen of Scots could do no wrong and was spotlessly lovely and Elizabeth was awful. But... Um, what she said, she says, Lady Jane Grey, who, though inferior to her lovely cousin, the Queen of Scots, was yet an amiable young woman and famous for reading Greek while other people were hunting. 
that sounds sounds a similar approach to history as my podcast. <laughs> um, the other thing I suppose that people are interested in and will fix on is this idea of her relationship with Guildford and exactly, you know, we, we're told she didn't want to marry him, but then when she did, she sort of fell in love with him. I mean, how, they weren't married for that long in the end, were they? There's no contemporary suggestion. that we. I think, again, we would like to think that there was some romance there. Mm. There's the wonderful film, Lady Jane, with Helena Bonham Carter's first um, ever acting role. She's wonderful in it. It's fantastically romantic. But there's no suggestion, actually, in the contemporary sources that Jane was at all impressed with mm. Gifford, other than the fact she knew she had to marry him. And in fact, the one contemporary description of her execution talks about Jane coming out dressed all in black, dry-eyed, utterly undaunted by the martyr's death to which she was going, and utterly undaunted also by the sight of Guilford's body being brought back from the scaffold. He had just been beheaded. His body was being brought back with his decapitated head wrapped in a bloody cloth. And the contemporary description says the, the carcass of her husband made no impression on her. She was a glorious Protestant martyr going to her glorious martyr's death. It's only a few weeks after her death that a new version of that account starts mm. circulating in London because they need a martyr that's a little bit more user-friendly. And perhaps more traditionally feminine, as it were. Exactly. Um, the description of her quailing, weeping, being blindfolded and then fumbling for the block, saying, where is it? What shall I do? Which is what Della Rush paints, this this mm. young woman in white, unable to find the block and her women weeping behind her. Her women definitely were weeping behind her. And it was a tragic scene. But yes, exactly what we expect our female martyrs to be. It's quite a complicated cultural phenomenon. Could Jane have saved herself if she turned her back on Protestantism and, and threw herself at Mary's feet? Mary didn't want to kill Jane. It was, after all, her cousin, um, a young woman, a young woman of learning and faith. If only Jane would have been prepared to see the, the true light in the way of Mary's Catholic, mm. um, newly restored Catholic Church. She needn't have died, as it were. But this is a phenomenon that you're. I know you're seen in many, many episodes of this podcast, you can keep a former claimant to the throne alive all you like, but the first time there's a rebellion, yeah. they're going to end up with a chop, yeah. and that was what happened. Yeah, indeed, we've seen that time and time again, except for Lambert Simnel, I suppose, who was absorbed into Henry VII's royal household. But, I mean, his claim on the throne was so ludicrous, nobody really took him seriously. Well, thank you so much again, Helen, for joining us. And, and um, I shall miss you in future monarchs, unless you want to quickly write a book about uh, George the Fourth or something. Maybe quickly and me and books don't really go together. <laughs> We've been out several times. I mean, talking to that, have you written about Jane at all? Has she appeared in any of your books? A little bit in my book, She-Wolves. Um, right. Well, She-Wolves starts with this moment in 1553 when England is going to get a reigning queen okay. because it's about female power. Well, there are many great books on Jane out there if you want to read further about this by the likes of Leander Delisle, Eric Ives and John Guy, who we had on talking about Henry VIII with his wife, Julia Fox. And I guess this just goes to show just how fascinated people are by the whole Tudor period. This insane... And insanely violent soap opera. I mean, I think we're used to thinking of the Middle Ages as a, as a very violent period, but no one was chopping wash people's heads off like the Tudors. I mean, if you were an aristocrat in the Middle Ages, unless you did something, well, you know, got killed in battle or... But nobody killed women before the Tudors mm. or Henry VIII. Um, if you were an aristocratic woman, you might die in childbirth, but you weren't going to get your head chopped off. Tudors changed all that. Henry changed all that. Religion changed all that. Well, let's not get on to the part that religion has played in world history. 
So, yes, a big thank you once again to Helen Castor. We will miss you on future episodes, Helen, as we sail on into the modern world. And please, dear listeners, join me for the next part of this voyage as we get into the reign of Bloody Mary and ask the question, compared to the other Tudors, was she really that bloody? Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023.